The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. Do you believe everything that you see on TV or uh, hear on the news or read on the internet? Uh, it's a serious question, and I, I'm not intending to incite uh, anyone toward conspiracy theories by any means. But over the course of the last couple decades, we have been inundated by so much information that it's hard to tell these days what is, what is true and what is not. Take the story of a 14-year-old named Nathan Zoner, for example. In 1997, he received a lot of media attention uh, for his science project in which he circulated a petition uh, to get a substance called dihydrogen monoxide banned. And he contended uh, that this dihydrogen monoxide is also known as hydroxyl acid, and it is the main, uh, the major component of acid rain, that it contributes to the greenhouse effect, that uh, it contributes to erosion of natural landscapes, and uh, it may cause electrical failure, that it has uh, decreased effectiveness on automobile brakes, may cause severe burns, uh, it accelerates the corrosion and rusting of metals, and has been found in, uh, in excised tumors of terminal cancer patients. And despite the risk, his, his project further noted that uh, this nefarious chemical uh, is often used as an industrial solvent and coolant. Uh, it is used in nuclear power plants. Uh, it is used in the production of styrofoam. Uh, it is uh, it, it's used in many forms of cruel animal uh, research. It's used as a fire uh, retardant. Uh, it is used in the distribution of pesticides. Even after washing, uh, the substance remains on produce. Um, and uh, further, it is used as an additive in junk foods and other food products. And at first blush, you and I would, would ask, where in the world do I sign this petition? Because if this chemical is so bad for us and so destructive uh, in our world, then we ought to ban. And we might even wonder why such, a, such an element would ever be uh, allowed in the first place. That is, if you believe that dihydrogen monoxide is a harmful chemical. Uh, perhaps you uh, are very astute in high school or college chemistry and You've already come to the conclusion that dihydrogen monoxide is uh, nothing but the, the chemical name for water. And perhaps you were not a great chemistry student and this was alarming to you and, and maybe you would feel better about remembering that, uh, that the chemical breakdown is H2O, dihydrogen monoxide, one, one element of the oxygen in that. And that Nathan Zoner Science Project had nothing to do with actually wanting to ban a chemical, but rather his science pro uh, project was meant to figure out how gullible people actually are. And his research was based on a 1983 article in the Durand Express, which is the newspaper in Durand, Michigan, in an article that was originally published on April Fool's Day. Uh, a and a 1990 article in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that highlighted a parody group from UC uh, Santa Cruz called the Coalition to Ban Dihydrogen Monoxide and Friends of Hydrohydroxide, which hydrohydroxide is another word for hydrogen peroxide. 
Uh, you know, it's one thing to be duped by a 14-year-old doing a science fair project. Uh, it's another thing to be duped by a false teacher within a church. Uh, one is humorous, and it's you know, non-consequential. We may find it funny that we got duped there, but the other is deadly and has eternal con- uh, consequences. The letter of First Timothy here is primarily concerned with church order. It was written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Tem- uh, Timothy, and uh, was with the purpose of Timothy getting the church at Ephesus back in, back in shape. And of all the major issues that Paul here is trying to combat, uh, number one on his list was that of truth. Truth about sin, truth about righteousness, truth about salvation, uh, truth about Jesus Christ. And just like at the time of Timothy, we today are facing a situation in which churches are falling prey to contemporary cultural and political ideologies, often stamping a Jesus sticker on it and claiming to be faithful. And since the church is typically associated with uh, truth-telling and goodness, well-meaning people are falling hook, line, and sinker into these destructive worldviews that, instead of saving them, will, in fact, lead them to hell. And in our passage today, Timothy warn, Paul warns Timothy that not only is the substance of this false teaching uh, distributed among the flock at Ephesus flat-out wrong, but it is actually rooted in, uh, in demonic activity. And that sounds as shocking to us today as it did to them back then. But as we look at this passage today, we are going to find that false teaching isn't just a tacky preference for people that want to have their ears tickled. It's a deadly poison that has to be found and removed. So let's read the passage and see what the Holy Spirit says to us today. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes this. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. If we want to see the signs of the times, the first thing that we need to do is understand the source of false teaching. We need to see the the source of false teaching. Paul's already asserted his authority Uh, in writing on behalf of God all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, when he said that he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And now here in chapter 4, verse 1, he promotes that what he is saying is continued, not his own opinion, but rather this is the very words of God himself. Notice what he says in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, the Spirit he's referring to here is undoubtedly the Holy Spirit, and though all of Paul's words in this letter is God-breathed, the fact that he's saying that this is what the Holy Spirit directly says to him, it's something that we ought to pay attention to. It's not the normal way that biblical writers wrote their material, 
And uh, here, Paul is getting direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. And what does the Spirit say? It continues in verse 1. That in later times, some will depart from the faith. Now, we need to make sure that, we, that when looking at a text like this, we don't come to the conclusion of seeing what the Spirit is not saying. And what I mean by that is that there is a tendency uh, in modern Christians to read this text and immediately go to end times. Uh, that whenever, whatever the Spirit says here will only be applicable to what is to come, and then these things are an indication that the end is nigh. But in looking at it this way, it will often drive us to irrational fear, and it will lead us to see uh, everything in this text uh, in our current contemporary situation in one way or another. And we'll look under every rock and every situation to give ear to these modern prophets that are pointing to us, uh, pointing us towards something that might not be true. However, in, in a New Testament understanding of the later times, it simply means the, t the period of time between Jesus' ascension and his return. So Paul is writing in the later times. You and I right now, we are meeting in the later times. People have been departing from the faith since the beginning of the church. They continue to do it today, and they will continue to do it until Jesus comes back uh, for us. And unless we think of this in terms as individuals just giving up the church or walking away from the faith, we have to take note of the context by which Paul is writing. Paul is making the case here that there are some people within the church who have departed from the faith. But they are convinced or perhaps deceived into thinking that they're still part of the tribe. It is entirely possible for not only individuals to commit apostasy and leave the faith, but for entire denominations and entire churches who have the title church on their exterior sign, but yet they've abandoned uh, Jesus in exchange for the latest cultural fads. And we need to be careful because we can fall prey to that as well. It is much easier to have the cultural winds at your back pushing you along than it is to be going against the wind. And we must guard ourselves lest we be the object of Jesus' disapproval and his removal of his presence from our church, as he states in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. But what is it that is driving some of these people to depart from the faith? Look again in verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, I believe it was in 10th grade uh, when we dissected frogs in biology class. And when we did this, we were to make observations from the macro into the micro. So that is, you make observations from uh, the, the, the whole frog that you have there. And then as you, as you cut and as you pry and as you remove, you start seeing all the little systems that make that frog, uh, well, what he was at one point, uh, a happy-go-lucky guy that would be eating flies or, or whatever. Um, and so um, it was a memorable experience because when the average person looks at a frog, they don't, 
they don't think about how his stomach works. They don't think about the uh, anatomy of his lungs. They only see what's on the outside. They don't think of the systems that make him functional. And here Paul is saying that he is dissecting bad theology that was being taught to the church at Ephesus. And just like most of us only see the outside of the frog, most of us only hear the substance of the false teaching. Not many of us recognize the source. And Paul here tells us that it is incredibly important that we open up the frog of bad theology and look inside and see what is actually happening. People departing from the faith comes by bad theology. And bad theology, the Spirit says here, comes from seductive spirits and deceptive demons. There is an unseen reality right now that we are living in, in which evil spirits, MO, their modus operandi, is to lead people away from God's truth and into worshiping some false deity. These are labeled as deceitful and seductive because they're attractive, because they look good, because they sound plausible. But Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that seem reasonable. You know, taking the fruit from the tree in Genesis 3 sounded reasonable to Eve. And yet here we are. So what we see when we open up that frog ought to alarm us. All of those systems, when put together, present us with an entire frog. So how is it then that these demonic influences communicate their message? Look at verse 2. It says, Through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. That word liar there is the word, um, well, the, you have the, the word hypocrisy is the Greek word, uh, basically hypocrite. It means to play a part. It means to live or to display a character other than what is truly yours. And here Paul is relating that to the teachers who are hustling those under their care. And it may very well be that they don't consciously think that they are lying. It may very well be the case that they are legitimately convinced that they are espousing the truth. So how does that square? Well, we, they certainly have rejected the truth in exchange for a lie. And further, Paul says that their consciences are seared. That word seared is like a, a, a branding iron. And for those of you that have had have cattle or you, you know, had to, the unfortunate you know, uh, uh, work of having to brand something, it's putting that hot iron on there. And once it is burned in, it ain't going away. It is on the skin permanently. And really for any sin... Uh, including leading others astray, the grill is set to low heat so that the conscience uh, is seared slowly. You fall into a sin once and you might feel guilty about it. 
The second time, you may start feeling guilty about it, but by the third, the fourth, the, the fifth, the tenth, the twentieth, the thirtieth, you've forgotten all about that first feeling of guilt for doing it. And now you've accepted it. It's become part of who you are. It's a seared conscience. Paul is warning Timothy here, and us by extension, that these problems are not something that are coming in from the outside. They may have started there, but now they're inside the walls of the church. They're in the Sunday school class. They're in the pulpits. They're in the seminaries training future pastors. And unless we get a good grasp of what's really going on, we may see in these later times people departing from the faith in our own midst. So we need to know the source of this. But second, we also need to recognize the substance of this as well. Recognize the substance. When it comes to recognizing the essence of false teaching, uh, even if you were to analyze uh, most cults and their theology, the general (laughs) general general trend will uh, point you in the same direction. It will usually point you in some sort of legalism in a couple ways. The first is to say that you have to be a certain kind of person. You have to be this or you have to be doing that. You need to have this kind of character quality in order to be in good with with the God that you are seeking. And a a pseudo-Christian understanding of this false teaching would be something like, if you're a real Christian, then you would be doing X, Y, and Z. You can fill in the blank. If you're a real Christian, you... You have to vote Republican. If you're a real Christian, then you should be homeschooling your kids. If you're a real Christian, and, 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 and so on and so forth. These things that you have to be doing. But if you're, and if you're not doing those things, then you run real risk of not being a true Christian. And that's ludicrous. In fact, it's anti-gospel. But more often than not, the kind of false teaching that we encounter in our own hearts and what we see often in the church is the one that focuses on the do-nots. Don't smoke, don't drink, uh, don't swear. Um, you know, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, and I don't date girls who do. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. But <laughs> it's um, in this view, uh, you know, and decades ago, you would have, you would have heard the, the phrase, you would have heard the phrase, you can't go to the movies. You can't dance. You can't play cards. In this view, Christianity is only shown in what we aren't. And so what appears to be part of this, this, uh, the narrative that these false teachers were pushing was abstinence from things. You, you, don't, you can't be married. married. Being married isn't good. And further, eating meat, that's not good either. Look at verse 3. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from food that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. And in, in, in other words, true Christianity was only shown in what you weren't. And they were a deliberate attack on the doctrine of creation uh, and the doctrine of marriage, uh, two things that God had created in order for us to enjoy him. 
And Paul then ends up calling them out that they are uh, to be received with gratitude. And perhaps the main idea here that we need to take away is the subtle um, replacement of the gospel, which is the idea that we are accepted by God, not in uh, what we do or who we are or how we look, but rather by his grace through faith, and we replace those things with tangible expressions to show that maybe we're righteous by our own goodness. It is taking something that cannot save and making it the big thing. It, uh, in, in the Ephesian context and in our context today, there's nothing wrong with vegetarianism in principle. But the minute someone says, this is what you have to do in order to be a Christian, it's wrong. Both marriage and singleness are gifts from God and ways to, that he glorifies himself. But to say that you can't be married or that you have to be single is heresy. I remember a few years ago listening to a sermon, um, and I, I'm going to say his name because he, he's public in saying this, uh, Greg Boyd, who is no stranger to theological controversy here in Minnesota or really across, uh, across the world, uh, he was trying to make the claim that one of God's purposes in redemption is to return to Eden. So in redemption, God is making all things new, and our goal here in this world is to make things more Edenic, be like they were back in the garden. And because God is making all things new, we ought to not eat meat as Christians. Adam and Eve didn't eat meat before the fall. That was a result of the fall. So therefore, Christian, we need to uh, lay off the beef. And Boyd's point was that as Christians, we shouldn't eat meat. And it sounds an awful lot like verse 3. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude. It is the same false teaching that says, if you want to be righteous, or in order to be right with God, you need to do this, that, and not do this or that. But what we must remember, that any righteousness that we have, any right standing that we have with God, it's not our own. It is given to us by God's grace through faith. Christ's work and Christ's righteousness through faith is applied to us. Our life in the church today really is not that far off from life in Ephesus here. We still have legalistic tendencies. And they're just as damning as what these false teachers professed. In some churches... And if you don't believe in the King James Version as the only authoritative source of Scripture, then you're not a Christian. I mean, I like King Jimmy Version and all, but folks, the translation you use is of little consequence as long as it's accurate to the original. And to say that it's alone and authoritative is wrong. Some churches have such a strong stance on end times theology that it, to disagree with it is to be tantamount to apostasy. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, there is pressure that, uh, that, that, that we feel as pastors to say, in order to be a relevant church, 
you got to have a fog machine and a rock band and lasers and pastors with skinny jeans. And <laughs> that ain't happening, folks. I'm sorry. If I do wear skinny jeans, if my wife hasn't called me out before, I want you to please do that. Not that skinny jeans is wrong. If you're a Christian, you can wear skinny jeans all you want. I just won't be wearing them up here. Uh, you know, it's to say to be part of this church, you need to be the kind of Christian that looks like you have it all together. You need to come on Sunday morning looking nice and acting like, man, there's nothing going on in your life or in your heart. And folks, chasing after these false gospels is absolutely exhausting. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of running. I'm tired of running after these things. There's only one gospel that frees us up, and that is the gospel of Christ and him crucified alone on our behalf. The gospel that says there's no way that you can do it on your own, so it's already been done for you on your behalf. And by God's grace through faith, it's yours. Anything that says you've got to be this or you've got to be that has abandoned the gospel and is preaching the doctrine of demons. And we would do well to review our own minds and spirits as well as the church. That if we have the math equation going on in our hearts and our brain saying Jesus or faith plus fill in the blank equals redemption, then we've got it wrong. We need to see that the true gospel is better. Recognize the substance and recognize the truth. Third and finally, we should embrace the salve of the gospel. Embrace the salve of the gospel. Every summer, uh, at the Rue House, we have to take out the aloe gel. I don't know if anybody else has to do it, and it's because we always end up getting sunburned. As much uh, uh, sunscreen as we want to put on, it doesn't change the fact that we are just pasty Scandinavians. And we are going to go and we're going to get burned. Sunburns hurt. They hurt to the touch. They hurt when you're in the shower. They hurt sometimes when you have clothing on. They hurt when you have uh, to lay down on, on the bed. But when mama breaks out that, uh, that aloe gel and, and it gets spread on that, that burned shoulder and you feel the coolness on your skin, man, there is nothing like that aloe gel working on that burn. And the spirit of the church and in the individual lives of its members, uh, burn and peel under the harsh UV rays of false teaching. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus becoming uh, a human, living a perfect life on our behalf, dying the death that we deserved, being raised from the dead to, to show his victory over sin and over, over death, and then being raised uh, to, to glory and, uh, and ascending to be next to God the Father is the cool aloe on the burning shoulder of a weary soul. Again, in our passage, Paul was uh, dealing with the fact that these false teachers uh, were teaching that, uh, that you've got to measure up. You've got to toe the line. You've got to have a spiritual checklist of certain behaviors. And some of those things were, were directly attacking the doctrine of creation. They were saying that what God had made and what God had created was good is in fact not good. So Paul goes back to Genesis 1 and encourages Timothy Splock. Genesis 1, 1, uh, 131, I'm sorry, when it said that God 
saw all that he made. And behold, it was very good indeed. Everything that God had made was not only good, but it was made to be enjoyed by us. And the gospel frees us up to exchange this life of checklists, this life of, of burden, of wondering if we, if we measure up to one of gratitude and one of praise. It's gratitude that is essential to sound theology. Look in verse 4. For everything that is created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received uh, with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. If we are people of the gospel, then you and I need to be people of gratitude. And many of us only consider gratitude toward God when we sit at the dinner table. Maybe we bow our heads and fold our hands. Then we go back to life as it was. But gratitude through prayer ought to be a way of life. G.K. Chesterton was an English essayist and biographer. He wrote this. You say grace before meals? All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera. And grace before the concert and the pantomime. And grace before I open up a book. And grace before sketching. Painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in ink. Folks, if we lived with such a sense of gratitude, what would our lives look like? If we continued to live lives of gratefulness and prayer, how much growth would we see in our lives? How many sins would we avoid? When we're pondering in action, what would happen if we asked ourselves, can I thank God for what I am doing right now or about to do without being ashamed of it? Gratitude ought to be the catalyst by which we live our lives. It is the gospel that is on the salve of uh, the wound of legalism and false teaching. And maybe you're here today and you've been living under just the, the, this crushing weight of whether or not you're good enough. Or whether you're just enough, period. Or maybe you are living under the, the impression that God wants you to be something before he accepts you. Well, through the gospel, Jesus tells us, come to me. I love you despite who you are. And if you come to me, I will love you too much to keep you where you're at. Your life can look so much different if you trust in the God of the gospel. You know, the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide may uh, have been nothing more than a hoax. Uh, but people still bought into it. And as I did some research this week, there are still websites going up and there's still information out there that people are still being duped by uh, this, this uh, silly hoax. There's nothing funny about false teaching and doctrine. It sends people to hell. And it's incredibly 
of, it's, it's, it's of crucial importance that we be a church that seeks the truth of God rightly, rejects whatever the, whatever the culture wants to leak into the church. You know, it's crucial that we recognize the source and substance of false teaching and counter it with the source and substance of the gospel. It is Jesus alone that redeems. It is Jesus alone that saves. Let's put our trust in him. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. You are welcome to pass this message along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Emmanuel Baptist Church. This message has been made available by the generous supporters of Emmanuel Baptist Church. For additional information about how you can partner with Emmanuel, please visit us at www.emmanuelmora.com. There you will find more free messages and links to ministry opportunities to help you grow in your faith. If you are watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button to always receive the latest messages. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Baptist Church, Mora, Minnesota. Knowing Christ and making Him known.